Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to hear all those conversations. And I'm sure we'll have time after the service to continue them. Right now, we're going to have a short conversation with our Lord God and come before him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, especially this Father's Day, that you are our Father. You're everything we could ever want in a Father. You love us, you care for us, you forgive us. You want us to be forever part of your family. And we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus, whose very words are the water of life to us, that he has washed us and cleansed us and refreshes our thirst every day. And as we come before that precious word, and as James opens it up to us, we pray that you would refresh us again, that we would have open ears to listen and open hearts to receive, and let this water of your word wash over us. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my name's Nicole, and it is my great blessing to be able to bring the Bible reading to you today. We are looking at Isaiah chapter 55, the entire chapter from verses 1 to 13. And yes, it is definitely about coming for those who are thirsty. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever.
All right. Well, good morning again. Uh, let's have a fun little test here of what generation you're in to start with. Uh, if I show a photo of this wonderful uh, saint of woman right here, what is, what is the first thing that pops into your head? Because for some, many of you, many of you, you'll be surprised that the first thing that popped into some people's heads was not what you're thinking, but this. All right, so let's be honest. Who's the, who's, who first went here? Who went to Princess Iris? Okay. This is going to be a lot more in the evening, let me tell you. All right. It's going to work that way. Uh, who, went, who went with uh, Mary Poppins? A few more people that way. And who went, of course, Sound of Music. All right, but let's be honest, when you went Sound of Music, that's not the version of Maria that you were picturing. It was this, wasn't it? Yes, all right? This is the thing. It's iconic. It's completely iconic, this image. In fact, when you picture it, you know, it's, it's more like, bam, it's that, right? Like it's, it's, it's big, it's bold, it's this epic uh, moment in cinematic history. I think it still holds the record for the most number of weeks at number one. In fact... Sound of Music was still number one when Mary Poppins came out like 13 months later. Crazy. Anyway, that's not really my point. My point is that the hills are alive with the Sound of Music. I just want to have some fun with it as we get there. Uh, but we've got this, this part of this passage that gives this, this picture very much, just like the, the, the song. You know, this idea of, of the mountains singing, the trees clapping, this exultant moment, just as Maria sings at the start, I'm not going to sing, I should have got like Nicole or, or Wendy or somebody who can, can sing to, to do it for us, but the hills are alive with the sound of music. It's this epic sweeping moment that, that is so powerful that despite that this came out, you know, some 60 odd years ago, right, it, it still holds weight. And yet here in the scriptures, we, we've got a picture of, of this sort of rapturous joy also, and yet I have a feeling that for most of us, um, this, this isn't where we live. That, that, that this is not where we dwell most of the time. And yet, there's something in this passage that, that promises us that, that something of this is ours if we believe and trust in Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to work through this passage this morning. We're going to see what it says to us. And then we're going to uh, you know, get to a point where we can think and reflect on what, what is this picture of joy that this passage is giving before us? Is it something that we're meant to be living out daily? What, what does that actually look like for us? And what can we do to actually try and attain it for ourselves? So if you've been uh, visiting here with us, welcome. Uh, it, it's so great to have you here. We're working our way through this Old Testament book called Isaiah uh, by the prophet Isaiah. He was a dude that was prophesying about 700 years or so before the birth of Jesus during the reigns of those kings in blue that you see up there. And as we've been working our way through it, one of the things we've talked about is how this really significant moment occurs in the life of God's people. Right, at one point in, in Israel's history, they were a united nation, but they break into two. The northern kingdom in about 725 there at the top uh, goes into exile and, and basically is disbanded. That nation no longer exists. But the southern kingdom of Judah persists until we get to, to that little section there called the Babylonian exile. And as we've worked through the book of Isaiah, we've seen that while most of the first half of Isaiah, and it was Isaiah prophesying about things that happened during his own lifetime, from the second half of the book, from about chapter 40 onwards, it's really looking forward at the second uh, exile and, and the, the return of God's people from exile. And one of the things that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks is that in these chapters, this, this figure of the servant becomes this really prominent figure. 
that lots of the hopes for God's people are invested in. And we've seen lots of things about him over the last couple of weeks. We looked at two of the passages that are up there that speak about him. We're going to see a couple more words about that. But the basic idea along the servant is that he is going to be the one who is God's servant, who will be rejected and killed, but will live again. That seems to be the picture that we've been given. And now that we've, we've finished up the servant passages, we're now seeing a little bit about how before the people, this choice remains. Now that the servant has done his work, how are the people going to respond? Are they going to become servants of God themselves, or are they going to choose a different path? And what we're going to see here is is God's promise about what he's going to give to all those who become his servants themselves. So let's, let's jump in and have a look at this passage here. It starts off with this call from the Lord to the people saying, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. This is an invitation that's being given to all. It's not just to the wealthy. It's not just to those who have means. But this is an invitation to all people, whether you have money or not, come and eat. You know, come buy and eat. There's still a, it's not just a free giveaway. There's, there's something that they're going to be asked for themselves. And this thing is going to be good. It's not just water. It's not just bread, but come buy wine and milk. They, these were, you know, uh, a, a wealthier person's beverage uh, back in the day. All right? This was not just something that everyone had lying around in the cupboard. This was something that you enjoyed if you, if you had abundance and, and that sort of idea. But come and enjoy it without money. And without cost. So there's a buying that's going to take place here, but it's not, it's not money. It's not a fee that you're paying. It's interesting. So let's keep moving and see what we get from this. It says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? All right, so it seems to be suggesting here that this is not uh, whatever we're talking about purchasing here. Maybe this is more than just the, the literal reality. Maybe there's a figurative meaning to what's going on here. Come, you are thirsty, be filled. Come, buy wine and milk. But, but don't just get bread. Get, get something that's actually going to satisfy. Don't just get a physical thing. Get something more than that. So God, in order to get their attention, says, listen, listen, fun fact, in Hebrew, the same word for listen uh, is translated sometimes as obey. To listen to God is to do what he says. To say, listen, listen, is akin, when God speaks it, to say, obey, obey, because to truly listen to God is to indeed respond in the way he wants you to. Listen, listen to me, says the Lord. Remember that God's people at this point in time, we believe, are in exile or maybe returned from exile. They've experienced the pain and the penalty and the punishment of what it was like when they did not listen to God. But now he says, come and feed on something richer than bread that will satisfy you, but come to me for it and eat what is good. Again, there's a suggestion there that maybe you have partaken of things that have not been healthy and good for you, but now is the time to come and get something that will satisfy more than bread and that will be good for you. Indeed, you will delight in the richest affair. He goes on and says, give ear and come to me. Again, that idea of listen, listen. Why? So that you may live. This is the gift that God really wants to give to his people. He wants them to live. 
He wants them to come to him and be filled, not just with bread, not just with physical things, but with something deeper, with something that satisfies on another level. And so he says, come to me, feed on what I will give you, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Now, everything that we've covered so far, you know, as far as reading through it, you could probably understand something of what's happening here without too much more Bible knowledge. But this is now a reference to a broader thing that happens in the Old Testament, something really significant that happened in the life of God's people. And that was that that God made these promises to Israel's greatest king, David, a couple of hundred years before Isaiah was prophesying. It was a very big promise about David and his family and what God was going to do through him. And the promise went like this from the book of 2 Samuel. The prophet Nathan back then said, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's promising David that somebody from his family, even after David dies, is going to sit on the throne of this kingdom of David forever. And God says even more than that. He says, I will be his father, and he should be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human's hand, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God spoke these words to David. It's a massive promise that somebody from David's family would always sit on the throne of his kingdom, that indeed there would be times when they would be punished, they would be disciplined, but God's promise is someone from your family will always sit upon this throne. And so when Isaiah speaks these words to God's people, saying to them, come to me, feed on that which is not bread, receive something that satisfies even more so, come and have life, and then he frames it in terms of this covenant promise that he made to David, okay, he is once again saying that my promises to David still remain, which for God's people in exile must have been huge. See, when they went into Israel, they lost their land, They lost the temple of God, and really significantly as well, they were no longer ruled by somebody from David's family. There was a foreign power over them. But now there's this promise that as they come back from exile, that somebody from David's family is going to sit on the throne again. But what's really interesting is is that as he starts to sort of unpack a little bit about who this figure is and what's going to happen here, we see that it's actually a bigger picture than even what this great King David was for Israel back in the day. Because Isaiah goes on to say, See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. And when he says him there, he's talking about David. I've made David a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. But what's interesting is that word peoples there is not like different people groups within Israel, but more broadly looking at, at nations and things beyond. So, so what's going on there? See, see, David was only ever the king of the nation of Israel. He wasn't the king of many, many nations. So what's happening here? 
especially because Isaiah then goes on to say, Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So again, we've got these nations, these peoples that are being tied to this Davidic covenant that God promised back to King David back in the the day. What's going on there? Because he was the king of Israel, not the king of nations. Now we get some hints, okay, if we, we dig around the Old Testament that maybe this Davidic king had a, had a broader role to play at some point. In Psalm 18, it says, you've delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People did not, I did not know, now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. This is, this is one of the Psalms of David in, in the book of the Psalms there. But not only that, we've seen already in the book of Isaiah, as we've looked at these, this figure of the servant, that this role of the servant has something to do with the nations also. Of God's servant, it said, he'll be a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice, not just on the nation of Israel, not just amongst God's people, but on earth. In his teaching, the islands, the, 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 the furthest nations away from Israel, that's what the islands mean here in this context, even the far out nations will put their hope in him. And so we have this sense here that if this is the, the map that we've looked at of kind of the, the ancient Near East and the world that these guys lived within, uh, Judah was always the place where, where God reigned in his temple. This was the place where in the Old Testament they saw him dwelling before the exile. All right? but, but it was still like he was seen to be the God of Israel. But now Isaiah is giving this, this much bigger picture that the God of Israel, the one who created the heavens and the earth, is the God of all the nations, not just Israel. Israel. And the reason that God's going to work through this this promise that he made to his servant David so many years ago is because he has endowed them with splendor. He's given this gift to them. It's going to be a sign to others, this splendor that rests upon them. Now, this might seem a little bit, uh, you know, left of field, this might seem like this is, these are a lot of big ideas here, but it's really important for us to understand this picture of, of who this figure is and how it ties to the promises of David and the servant, so that as we take this forward to the New Testament, we can understand just how grand a figure this is that Isaiah is speaking about here. Now, we'll come back around to that, but for now, as we go on through the passage, it says this, "'Seek the Lord while he may be found.'" Call on him while he is near. Remember, God's people are in exile, maybe just returned from exile. There's still a sense as they seek to reestablish God's ways and God's teachings. You know, what are the people going to do? Are they going to continue to follow the, the way of the Babylonians and the foreigners that they've lived amongst for so long, for like 70 years? Or are they going to return to the ways of God? And so this call comes out, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. This call is going out to God's people wherever you have been, whatever wickedness you've been involved in, as you've been in exile, as you've been in Babylon, you've made mistakes. It's been a trying and difficult 
time. But now God is doing something. He is going to be restoring not just his kingdom, but even the promises that he gave to the grace of King David. And these promises now are not even just for the nation of Israel, but it, this is going to be something much, much bigger. This is going to speak to the nations also. And so now is the time, you wayward people, to forsake your wicked ways and come to the Lord that he might freely pardon you. And this is such an incredible promise that the way God explains this is to say that I, I know you might not get this or understand this, but you need to trust me in my ways in this. For he says next, my, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, I think sometimes when we just hear this verse without context, we hear it as a declaration that God's ways are better than ours. And that's, that's true. It's, it's, it's a good you know, coffee mug sort of verse, right? My ways are higher than your ways. Trust in the Lord and not in your own understanding. We sort of start to blend those ideas together. But in context, we realize that God is explaining that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways because... You might not be gracious like I am being gracious. You might not call the wicked back like I'm calling the wicked back. You might not give pardon the way that I'm giving pardon. But that is what I, the Lord, am doing here. And he's going to build it up even further because he says that as I do this, understand as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's making this promise to them that he is going to fulfill his plans and his purposes. And so we need, we need to put these pieces together, right, to understand exactly what it is that he's promising he is going to do. And so as we retrace our way back through the passage, it says that he's calling God's people to him so that they might eat and they might live and they might have blessing, something richer than the richest affairs, something that will truly satisfy, not just bread, but something more, something deeper. He says, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my, my faithful love promised to David. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. And he's done all this in order that the wicked might turn from their ways and return to him. This is the picture that he's putting forth. It's in this context that he's guaranteeing that his ways are going to pass. This is not, first and foremost, a declaration of God's sovereignty over all things, but rather God's promise to his people that he will give them life. That if they come to him, if they listen to him, he is going to give them life, for his ways are higher than our ways. That's the promise that's being made here. And as this happens, as my word goes forth, as it does what it's going to do, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. 
The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. I thought about photoshopping Julie in there, but, you know, didn't seem right. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. All right, you, you're tracking with me, right? God's speaking to his people in exile. They've lost the promised land. They've lost the temple. They've lost their sense of national identity and all this sort of stuff. And now God's word is coming forth to them, saying to them, come and feed on something better than bread. Come, on feed, come and feed on something that, that will not leave you empty, but rather something where you will have life. And all those promises that I made to David, those many years ago, those are still good. I'm still going to uphold them, except I'm going to make them bigger. It's going to be all of the nations that are going to come to you. And as the wicked turn from their ways, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to freely pardon. And as I do all these things, you will have joy and peace as the mountains sing and the trees clap. Indeed, he says that instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. I don't know how many of you are tree experts out there, but I imagine that when you've read this passage before, you've possibly pictured a much bigger tree than what the juniper actually is. You start to think about you know, like these mighty oaks. We think about thorn bush, and then we think really big tree. But the, the distinction here between the thorn bush and the juniper, or between the briar and the myrtle, is that one is spiky and painful and you do not want to get anywhere near it but the juniper and the myrtle will grow and give you shade that there'll be a place of of rest and comfort and respite that's what the imagery is actually giving to us here which to a people in exile must have seemed like a truly beautiful thing to them. And God says that this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. As he does this, his glory will be served also. Now, it's it's a beautiful picture all on its own. It's an encouraging message all in itself, but it takes it to another level when we take these promises and we realize again just how Jesus fulfills all these things for us as we look forward. Because we see that, again, so much of Isaiah just gets drawn upon by Jesus and his disciples at one point and another in the writings in the New Testament. Come all you are thirsty, Jesus said in John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The promises that were given to David, the covenant that existed there, as Paul went forth and he preached the gospel, he says that God raised Jesus from the dead so he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. The promises given to David are Jesus's and ours now. The idea of the nations being summoned towards this, this figure we see again in lots of different places. Just one in Romans that says the root of Jesse, one from the family of David, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. And of course, the word that goes forth from God's mouth that achieves his purposes. Well, Jesus is the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is, as we've seen it again and again, the Messiah, the servant, 
the prophesied one that Isaiah spoke to. He is the one fulfills, that fulfills all of these incredible visions and hopes that God has that they experienced a, a taste of in their own time, but in Jesus is fulfilled on a whole nother level. And so when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the good news to people now, what we're declaring is the same thing that Isaiah spoke back then. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, then this call, this is the awesome thing about Jesus. That sense of, you know, seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near. Because of what Christ has done and because of his spirit at work in the world today, he is always near. Wherever you're coming from this morning, whatever background you may have, whatever nation you might trace yourself back to, this promise is now not just for the Jews, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all nations and for all of us. And if God's been tugging on your heartstrings and, and, and helping you to see that maybe you're not living the way that you're meant to be, that there's stuff in your life that you just can't fix on your own, that there's choices you're making that you know are breaking your heart and breaking your world, the call to you is to come, to humbly own your wickedness, to own your unrighteousness, and to come and be pardoned by the Lord, to give ear to him and come and listen that you may live. And if that's you, please come and talk to us. Talk with the person that you came with. Come talk to me or the guys at the Next Steps desk, and we'll, we'd love to talk to you more about this and tell you about all that Jesus has done. For those of us, though, who know Jesus well, I think that the, the, the focus for us should be on this promised result that God has sought to give to us. You, you who have forsaken the ways of the wicked, You have been pardoned. This promise is for you. That's all here who believe in Jesus. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, being really honest, did any of you driving this morning hear the trees clapping? Was that that anybody's experience? We don't have a lot of mountains here, but maybe you've been down to Tambourine recently. Anyone hear any singing? Coming forth from the mountains. It's a poetic picture, right? But just because it's poetry, just because it's symbolism, doesn't mean it's not meant to be taken seriously and communicate something real to us. I think maybe some of us might relate a little more easily to the idea that instead of the thorn bush, that God is a place of safety and comfort. I think that that's an easier one for us to, to lay a hold of, that he's a place of refuge for us. But I do want to focus a little bit on this idea of what it means for us to, to lay claim to this joy and this peace, because I'm not sure if that's where most of us actually live. And I think that it deserves a little bit of deeper reflection, because because here's the thing, guys. Um, as we think about living this out, it says that, that this will be for the Lord's renown. It's not just the work of salvation, it's also the the joy and peace that we feel. And so this is not just an us thing. 
Walking in joy and peace is also something that we do for the, for the glory of God. That, that, that we fulfill this promise that he's given. And so our, our joy, our happiness, our peace is not just a you and me thing, but it, it's also a God thing because it's a testament to him. Now, this can get a little bit dangerous because we might think, oh, you know, if, if God's reputation's on the line that somehow we've got to fake it or, or pretend to be happy or joy, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about the appearance of happiness. We're talk, not talking about a gloss that we try and put on our lives so that God doesn't look bad. We're talking about something deeper than that. God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. God promises his word will not return to him empty but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. Now, obviously, this is something that most importantly is filled in Jesus. The word became flesh. It's only through his work in the cross that all of this is made possible for us. It's through his death and his resurrection that we can now know joy and peace, but the way that we lay hold of these things still is through God's word. And so I want to give you guys something here to, to work with, something, something concrete that you can take away, reflect on, maybe in growth group this week, maybe you know, add this to, to some of the questions that you guys are going to be looking at and that sort of thing. And I'll tell you where I've got this from. Um, six ways that God's word brings joy. Uh, this is Lisa Rapello. Uh, she's got a really great uh, blog, comes from a reform background, not too dissimilar to ours. Uh, and, and she was uh, widowed. Uh, she's got seven kids and all of a sudden found herself on her own. And, and her blog is really you know, helping Christians deal with, with grief and, and loss. She's got a book out, um, but if this is something that, that speaks to you that you're interested in, I think that this is a good one to, to check out. Um, but she says this. I cannot tell you how many times, especially in the last seven years of being a widow and single mum, I've started my morning with a heavy burden or worry or deep missing. But once I get into God's word, there's a great exchange that takes place. I give God my burdens and take back his abiding joy and peace. And and, and I love this because it's acknowledging two realities here. It's entirely possible for us to both know grief and sorrow and pain And yet in the beauty of God's grace and his mercy to us in this picture of God that we see in this passage, that that we can then take those things and we bring them to God and we lay them before him. And as we get into his word, we we can buy, so to speak, at no cost, the joy and the peace that he so freely wants to give to us. It's a gift that comes through Jesus Christ. It would be impossible without what he's done for us, but experiencing the fullness of it means listening to him in his word, the first of the six here. That if we're in a place of of, of difficulty or struggle or, or you don't feel the mountains singing, and again, not all the time, we're not talking about a glossy, you know, neon fake thing here. We're, we're, we're talking about where you find true joy and peace in the Lord. These are the things that we need to start to think about. First, that God speaks to us in his word. It's through his word that God has 
spoken to us. There's voices all around us in culture. There's all sorts of messages being given to us at one time or another. But if we want to hear from God, he has spoken to us through his son. He's spoken to us through his word. And it's in the scriptures that we get to know him. And so first and foremost, we need to know that God speaks to us in his word. Second, God's word brings us into his presence. His spirit always dwells within us. We are never outside of his presence. And yet in the same time, when we sit before God's word and we listen to it and we read it and we dig into it, God's there in a felt way that we aren't always experiencing when we're out doing other things. And so this is a chance for us to encounter God. It's a chance for us to hear from him. He speaks to us, but it's also our chance to encounter him in that moment. God's word reminds us who he is. In the course of life struggles and difficulties, the exiles that we experience, the pain, the discipline, all of that sort of stuff, we can start to get a a skewed perspective on who God is. Again, we might listen to other voices, but we can get confused. It's in his scriptures that we see God clearly understood through all that Jesus has done for us. And so God's word reminds us again who he is. Are you feeling like he's far and distant? You go back to God's word to remind yourself that, no, he is near and present. If you feel like he's been cruel and capricious, it's God's word that you go back to to understand again that, no, he is kind and gentle and merciful. If you feel like he's just that that figure in the sky waiting to throw a lightning bolt to strike you down, it's, no, 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 he is the father who disciplines me because he loves me and has my good at heart in all things. Number four, God's word reveals his promises. Those everlasting covenants that he made with David, the promises that he's given to us, the blessings that are ours, those aren't things that we just see in our everyday walk. We don't don't walk walk around the street and just see evidence of those promises. Those are things that we need to go to God's word to actually know and experience. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, you know, it would say, you know, write the word uh, on your hearts and around your doorposts, take it with you wherever you go, have it with you at a moment's notice, because we need to be reminded of God's promises. These are things that we don't just get from the world around us. They're something that we actively need to lay hold of. And remember, it's through knowing the blessings and the promises that God has given to us that that's where our joy and our peace flow forth from. That's the source of those things. God's word finally shows there is joy in suffering. Again and again in scripture, we see people in pain, in lament, in mourning, in suffering, in difficulty that turn to God and find their joy in him. We see the promises of scripture. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, to face trials of many kinds, for you know the testing of your faith will develop perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. It's in God's word that we're reminded of this. And finally, God's word helps to cleanse our sinful hearts. That maybe the reason that you don't know the joy and peace of the Lord at the moment is because there's sin that you're holding on to. There's, there's old ways of wicked thinking and living that you are still clinging to. And while you're saved, while you're redeemed by God's grace, while there's no doubt that you're a part of God's people, the thing about sin is, is that it, it brings death and destruction. Your selfishness, Narcissistic ambition, greed for worldly things, lust for the flesh, 
cruelty, a mean spirit, witchcraft. That's a Bible one. I don't have any reason to suspect, but whatever your thing is, while it might not stop you from being saved in God's mercy, it will bring pain. It will bring destruction. And God's word as we go is where we go to have that mirror held up to us so that we can look at it and say, okay, I need to turn from this. So I hope that as we think about this, that what this is more than anything is actually an encouragement to lay hold of the joy that God has for us. That no, life is not going to look like a Julie Andrews musical dancing through the mountaintops at all points in time. But there's something about the, the joy and peace of God, that, that deep sense of contentment, that, that even when I'm overwhelmed by my emotions, even when I'm frustrated and angry or sad or despairing or depressed, wherever I'm at, I, I can take that to the cross. I can say to God, Lord, this is where I'm at right now. Please take these things that I might lay hold of the joy that is found in your promises, in knowing you and knowing who you are. And that as we do this, it's going to be for God's glory. It will be for his splendor. And we can praise him and worship him in the exchange, knowing him truly through it. So let's pray. And then let's sing in joy for all the Lord has done for us. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for the invitation that he extends to us to come and eat and live. To receive the salvation that he so freely offers to us. Not because we deserve it. Not because we are good, but rather in our wickedness he freely pardons because your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, as we come to you with, with the deep abiding thankfulness of knowing the gift that you've given to us, may we also lay hold of the joy and the peace that's ours in those blessings and promises. In the midst of the trials and the difficulties that we, that we experience, in the midst of the pain and suffering that we experience in this world, may we come to your cross and exchange them for your joy and your peace, knowing that you might not take away the things that cause us pain. You might not take away the suffering that we endure but Lord, that we can find a way, knowing your blessings, to have joy and peace in the midst of it all. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, please stand as we sing in response to what we've heard. <laughs>